If you have your Bibles, open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus 32 actually picks up from the 24th chapter. In the 24th chapter, we see uh, Moses bringing the Word of God to the Israelites, and the Israelites' response in verse 3 is to say, we will do all that the Lord has commanded us. And then from chapter uh, 25 through chapter 31, uh, those are all the instructions for the tabernacle that Moses is receiving up on Mount Sinai. So you've got him gone. He's gone for 40 days and 40 nights, roughly six weeks. And uh, Israel is still down there on the desert floor waiting his return. And this begins the section on the golden calf. Literally, it's a bull. It's not just a calf. It's a young male bull is the actual Hebrew translation. But in, again, chapters 25 to 31, you have Moses receiving uh, the instructions on Mount Sinai regarding the authorized worship of God. God has given us a way to worship him. He's given the Israelites a particular way to worship him, and that would be through the tabernacle, through all the sacrifices and all the ceremonies. But in chapter 32, we see the false, fabricated human worship. But it's not the worship of God. It's the worship of a golden calf. It's the worship of an idol. This is in direct contrast to what God has revealed to Moses on the mountain regarding true worship. There's another contrast between what is taking place on the mountain and what is happening on the desert floor. It's a contrast between the presence of God and the insidious force of sin. The Apostle Paul addresses this in the book of Galatians in chapter 5, verse 17 when he talks about the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. So we see the presence of God with Moses up on the mountain. The presence of God really overshadowing his people. But you see this insidious power of sin at work in the lives of the people. If you go back to chapter 24 real quickly with me, I want you to notice this. In verse 3, Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, and they responded with one voice. There was unanimity. There was a consensus. There was common agreement. They're all on the same page. They responded with one voice. And they said, read this with me, everything the Lord has said we will do. So they were obviously committed. And then Moses goes up on the mountain for six weeks, receiving God's word, receiving God's commandments and so forth. And in chapter 32, as I said, we pick the account back up. In chapter 32, we see them doing just the opposite of what they said they would do. Sin. Why don't we do what we want to do? How many have the best intentions to honor God, to love God? How, what, don't we want to love God with our whole heart? Isn't that, isn't that the law of love? Jesus says, these, these two commandments, first and, and is love the God, Lord God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. How many want to do that? How many really want to love God with all, all your heart? Do we? No. What's the second great commandment? Love your neighbor yourself. Do we? Do we want to? Do we do it? No. What's the problem? It's sin in the flesh. It's sin that's still resonant with us, that we carry with us in our human nature, in our sinful nature. So we see this picture reflected down here on the, on, the, uh, on the desert floor, despite their best intentions. Beloved, unless we remain on guard, 
And we can have the best intentions and the best motivations, but unless we remain on guard, sin will raise its ugly head. It wants to reign in our mortal bodies. And Paul says, don't let it reign any longer in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. You see, what we see going on here in the life of Israel is just pictures that man is basically good. He's basically good in his heart, right? Well, there's some disagreement here. I see people saying yes and agreeing, and I see the other people saying no, no, that's, that's not right. Let's have a vote. <laughs> How many say that man is basically good? In his heart, he's just a good guy, good creature, basically good, right? How many say he's not basically good? Oh, my gosh, you way outvoted the others. Well, how do we know? How do we know if man is basically good or not? We have to go to the authority. We have to go to the Bible. What does the Bible say about this? The Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, that the heart is deceitful above all things. In other words, there's nothing more deceitful than the human heart. It's deceitful above all things. It is beyond cure. It's beyond cure. You have to understand the import of those words. It is beyond cure. You cannot rehabilitate the human heart. You cannot change yourself. You can't go through any amount of therapy and come out a better person. Trust me. How can I say that? Because the Word of God says it. You need a new heart. A new heart. Ezekiel said that God spoke to Ezekiel and said to his people, he said, I'm going to remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. A heart that's responsive, not unresponsive. So a man's heart is, is sinful, it's corrupt, it's deceitful, it's depraved. Now that's hard for us to grasp because we, we so want to justify ourselves, isn't that true? I just, I just, but I'm okay, I'm a nice guy. I'm a nice girl. You're a sinner. You see, we should be under no illusions about man. No illusions whatsoever. No illusions about what the world says about us to make us feel good about ourselves. You know, this whole thing about self-esteem and self-worth and, you know, rub everybody's tummy, make everybody feel good, don't offend anybody. The heart is so sick, Jeremiah says, no one can understand it except God. I know my own heart. No, you don't. You don't know your heart. Only God does. None of us does anything from a pure motive. Do you know that? We do everything we do from mixed motives. My mom used to say to me, why did you do that? And actually one day I sat down and I thought, why did I do that? I don't know. I went to her and I said, I don't know why I did that. It just, they just did it. So parents, when you ask your kids, why did you do that? Just don't expect them to be able to give you a clear answer. They're going to go, I don't know. Now, the young people that are here now, this morning, hearing this, they're going to tell their parents, well, you heard Pastor Zach. Pastor Zach, I don't know why I did. <laughs> now, that's not an excuse. You just say, I don't know why I did it, but I know it's wrong. I know it's wrong. I know it's wrong. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, you recall the Apostle Paul writes, All have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Nobody is left out. All have sinned. What does it mean to fall short of the glory of God? Fall short of God's standard of perfection. The rain is going away, I guess, and the sun's coming out. It's going to be a nice afternoon. And uh, so after church, what we're going to do is we're going to take everyone down to the beach today. We're going on a field trip. How many want to go on a field trip with me? Oh, not everybody. (laughs) 
Thank you, Steve. We're going to go on a field trip. And here's what we're doing. We're going to get out of the beach, and I'm going to draw a line in the sand. And we're all going to line up, and everyone, one at a time, is going to get a chance to run. You can start from as far back as you want. Run. At that line, you're going to jump to Catalina. Who's going to make it? Nobody. Nobody, obviously. Now, some people are going to get a little bit further than others, but no one's going to make it all the way to Catalina. You see, that, that, that's the idea. We fall short of the glory of God, God's standard of perfection. No matter how hard you try, no matter how well-intentioned you are, no matter how devoted you are, no matter how much you read your Bible and pray, all those things are good and all those things we should embrace. Not because we have to, but because we want to. And it goes with our new nature, right? But nonetheless, we're still going to fall short. Beloved, no person is sinless. No Christian is sinless. No person can keep from sinning and no Christian can keep from sinning. We sin by commission and we sin by omission. We do things that, quite frankly, are wrong. And we, most of the time, know better. We don't do things that maybe we should be doing. We omit things from our life. You're reading in Leviticus and about the sacrifices for the unintentional sins, sins that people didn't know about. We, we, we're still culpable. Aren't you glad that Jesus died for all those sins? Aren't you glad that he was the one final sacrifice so that, that every day you're not bringing a lamb or a ram or a bull to the altar every single day? How many sinned today so far already? Every one of us did. You say, I didn't sin. I, I, I'm, I did good so far today. No, you already sinned. How did I sin? You sinned by just getting up. Everything we do, every thought, every word, every attitude, every behavior, every action is tainted with sin. We can't help it. We're in a, a terrible situation, if left to our own resources. But thankfully, Jesus has saved us. Thankfully, he died for all those sins, intentional, unintentional, things that we know we did wrong, things that we don't even know we did wrong, things we're clueless about. His death covered all those. Somebody say hallelujah to that. Isn't that marvelous? In Romans chapter 7, you know, Paul, Paul describes his own struggle with, it's this inner struggle with sin. Again, we do nothing perfectly. It's a constant, constant battle. The only hope we have, the only recourse we have, is what the Bible tells us is true about our relationship with God through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Cleanses us, forgives us. John puts it this way, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. For the Christian, this is true, he says, when we do sin, or if we do sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Who is that one? Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He speaks to the Father in our defense. We have an advocate with the Father. He's our defense attorney, if you will. His action on the cross, his shed blood, his continual, the effect of his sacrifice is continual for the forgiveness of our sins. God does not hold our sins against us. He does not count them against us. But that does not mean that choices we make don't have consequences. True? And we also don't know how much God may, in fact, blunt the harvest of some of our sinful choices. So this is, this is our dilemma, but we have a great hope. In Romans chapter 6, verse 7, Paul says that we have been freed from sin. I love that. Freed from sin. What does that mean? I'm free, I'm free from its penalty. What's the penalty of sin? Death. death. And, and more particularly, eternal death, eternal separation. Hell. I'm set free from that. I'm not only freed from the penalty, I'm freed from its power. 
Sin no longer has power over me. I'm no longer its slave as I was prior to becoming born again. That's the truth. Sin no longer has power over me. That's why Paul will go on later on in chapter 6. He says, therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body any longer. That you should obey its evil desires. Why? Because you don't have to now. But that doesn't, we're not talking about sinless perfection. That's not what we're preaching this morning. We're not talking about that. We're talking about this battle against sin that we had no power over before. Now we do. Now we can say no. Now we can grow. Romans chapter 7. Again, let me read to you Paul's words. Verse 17. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. That is not a cop-out. He's not saying, that's not my fault. The devil made me do it. No, he's identifying... Again, if I can rehearse this, what do you think it is that he wants to do that he can't do? He wants to love God with his whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. He wants to honor God. He's just like you and I. We, we, God reveals his grace, his mercy, his love to us, and our response is, God, I want to love you back. I don't want to sin. But we don't do what we want to do. It's hard. It's, it's a practical impossibility. We keep falling short because sin still lives in this human nature. That's the problem, he says. It's not, it's not me. It's sin living in me. I'm walking along and I trip. I'm walking along and I trip. Why? Because I, I, I'm not perfect, morally speaking. You think Shaquille O'Neal wants to make free throws? <laughs> How many know about his, that poor guy's dilemma? I went to a Laker game a few years ago when he was still with the Lakers, and, and we had really great seats right close by the, 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 even with the free throw line. And he was there. Some of the guys in the church went with us with that weekend, and, uh, and, and he was shooting free throws. And, and I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm right there. I'm in his, in his ear practice. I said, bend your knees! <laughs> and he did. He, be- he went 11 for 12 that day. And those of you that understand Shaq's problem, he's a poor guy. That wasn't my point with that. Oh, no, I remember my point. I remember my point. He, he wants to make free throws, but he can't. He's imperfect. Not only that, he's a sinner. We want to do these things. We can't. Because the sin in our sinful nature... Now, again, please, don't use Romans chapter 7 as a cop-out because people have done that, have heard that. They say, well, you know, Paul, Paul couldn't obey God like he wanted because he was, you know. I said, shut up. <laughs> don't you use that as an excuse. It's the truth. It's the reality. But you don't use it as an excuse to cover over your sin. Israel, though God had set them free, has God set Israel free? From slavery. Hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt. They still had the minds, unfortunately, of slaves. It's like when you become a Christian, you're a brand new creation, but you still have the mind of a slave, in a, in a sense. Habits, patterns that, that you've developed over years, just like Israel. Israel now is free. They're free. But they still have a mind of a slave, And despite their testimony to do everything the Lord had said, despite their exuberance and their enthusiasm and their commitment, chapter 24, verse 3, they would rebel, they would sin, they would fall back to their old practices. And there's times, beloved, when you and I fall back into our old practices, our behavior, attitudes, sin, It's imperative that we be diligent, committed, walk after the Spirit. It's because Israel, or I should say we, 
are so much like Israel in so many ways that Paul says that we should learn from their example. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, let me read to you. Paul says in verse 6, he says, Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. Do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Verse 11, he says, These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. And so this section in chapter 32, chapter 33, chapter 34, three whole chapters, important for us to draw lessons from. Keep in mind now what Israel has experienced up to this point in the past few months since they've been liberated from slavery in Egypt. They'd witnessed God's miraculous power, had they not? Delivering them with all the plagues, the ten plagues, the Red Sea. I mean, the Red Sea alone, you would think, whoa, that is cool. The whole Egyptian army uh, uh, drowned in the Red Sea. The economy of Egypt decimated. They go from the world power to a third-rate world power in a matter of just a few weeks. Israel witnessed all this. They come through the Red Sea and they're on the other side. And now they're free, they're rescued. And uh, they experience hunger, they experience thirst. And yet God still provides miraculously for them. They witness all this. They experience this. They'd seen the glory and the power of God descend upon Mount Sinai in a cloud. They received the law of God from God's own hand via Moses. And they had committed themselves to follow and obey God with their whole heart. And at this point, they're camped at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses is up on the mountain. They're waiting for him to return with God's design for the tabernacle. Six weeks had passed by. Six long weeks since Moses had climbed up on the mountain into the glory, God, the cloud of God's glory. And what begins to take place vividly exposes what we described earlier about our sinful nature. This is the corrupt, sinful nature of man evidencing itself. And we're not immune from this. We're forgiven, but we're not immune from our sinful nature rising up also. The people simply broke their covenant with God. Their covenant to follow and obey Him. And this was so serious... Such a serious event that God broke off, interrupted his consultation with Moses on the mountain to deal with the situation. It's not like God can just kind of let it go on. He says, this is so serious. Moses, we're going to pick this up later. We've got to deal with this. This is a problem of the moment. And a problem of the moment has to be dealt with. The situation was so serious that three whole chapters are devoted to it. Chapter 32, 33, and 34. Terrible sin is happening in the camp. Terrible sin. What causes terrible sin? What caused Israel to, be, to lose faith in God? To turn away from Him and to take their lives and their destiny into their own hands. I think there's some significant lessons for us. Read with me just the first six verses of chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. 
He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. I want to offer to you, out of those six verses, eight things, eight causes of terrible sin. Eight things that we should be aware of. Number one, impatience. Now remember, the Israelites are on their way to the promised land of Canaan. They had stopped at Mount Sinai so that Moses and their leaders, under God's direction, could formulate all the laws that were to govern them as a nation, make them distinct, set apart from all the other peoples. Moses had gone up on the mountain to seek God's will, to seek God's word, but that had been six weeks ago. Six long weeks, and Moses has not returned. And Moses didn't even think enough to send Joshua down to let the people know what's been going on, why the delay, bring them an update. Notice Moses had been gone so long, the text says the people didn't know what happened to him. Maybe Moses... And Joshua were killed. Maybe we haven't heard anything because they're dead. It's been six weeks. Maybe Moses has forsaken them. Maybe he's gone over the other side of the mountain and he's forsaken us, he's forsaken God. Where's our leader? (laughs) Maybe Moses has returned to his ranching business with his father-in-law, Jethro. It's easier to be a rancher and take care of sheep that go, rather than the other sheep. Surely, surely Moses would have sent some report, some news by now. We haven't heard from him. So the people were imagining. Imagining leads to questioning. Questioning leads to becoming more and more restless until finally impatience gripped them. Impatience. They no doubt jumped to the conclusion that something had happened to Moses. He was not returning. Therefore, they had to take matters into their own hands. I know none of us have ever been tempted to do that. They themselves would have to take charge. They would have to resume their journey. It was time to go. We've been waiting around here much too long. They've been at Mount Sinai long enough. Their speculations, their questioning, their restlessness, and their impatience would lead to the terrible sin they're about to commit. Terrible sin. Anybody ever been kept waiting? Kept waiting. Waiting. Easy to wait, isn't it? No, it's not. Not easy at all. Most of us, most of us find it very difficult to wait. Waiting does something to us, doesn't it? It tests us. It tests us. And for the Christian, really, it, it, it tests our faith. You see, how long should I wait? They had to wait upon the Lord. Does God know you're waiting? Does He know the situation? Does He know what you need? Remember what Abraham and, Sarah, uh, Abraham and Sarah did back early on when they were waiting on the fulfillment of the promise of God? And they got a little impatient. Well, maybe we take matters in our own hands and uh, A.B. go sleep with Sarah, or I mean with Hagar, you know, and then we produce an Ishmael. Taking matters into your own hands. Well, when do I act?
wait. Wait on the Lord. There's two dynamics here. There's, there's things and issues that you cannot do anything about. Isn't that true? In those cases, you wait upon him, and the areas you can work on, you work on. So you continue to walk in obedience where you know to walk in obedience. You continue to walk in faith. You continue to walk in trust. But those areas you can't do anything about, you just wait. And rather than judging and rather than questioning and rather than doubting, you suspend judgment. You say, Lord, I don't understand this, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to wait on you in this area. I'm just going to commit it to you, keep praying, trust that you're going to work it through, but I'm going to work on the areas I know I can work on in. Does that make sense to you? Waiting does something to us. It tests us, tests our faith. It's meant to strengthen us in our faith. God uses it that way. But it also tells us something. Waiting tells us something. It shows what our relationship is to the person or the event that we're waiting for. Some people can keep us waiting for hours, and we don't mind. Isn't that true? My wife can keep me waiting for hours. No problem. I don't ever say, where are you? Come on, we're going to be late. What are you dawdling there for? The pastor can't be late. <laughs> Not me. We can wait for hours. <laughs> Patiently. Lovingly. <laughs> but if others, others are a minute or two late in our life, oh, we get impatient, don't we? See, waiting tells us something about our relationship with the person or the event, or the thing that we're waiting for. The Israelites cry. They're, when they cry out, they say, Come, make, make us gods who will go before us. That very cry revealed their inadequate faith in a time of waiting. This is instructive for us, beloved. Their inadequate faith in a time of waiting. There isn't a single one of us that hasn't waited, and isn't going to wait, and isn't waiting now. Isn't that true? And there's not a thing you can do about it except suspend judgment, trust God, work on in the other areas where you can work on. Be faithful. Be careful of impatience while you are waiting because it can lead you to missing the will of God and it can lead you to terrible sin. Now, God doesn't hold that sin against you if you're a Christian. That sin too has been forgiven. But there are consequences that you're going to have to experience. Albeit God may indeed blunt the harvest of that. Nonetheless, there are always consequences to our choices. Isn't that true? Beware of being impatient. Second, another cause of terrible sin is pressure from a crowd. Pressure from a crowd. We have a whole crowd, the world around us, pressuring us, don't we? Our kids have peer pressure, a crowd. We have spiritual, a crowd of spiritual forces arrayed against us, pressuring us. Now, who had been left in charge while Moses was gone? Aaron. Aaron was left in charge while Moses was up on the mountain. Scripture indicates, as you read the text, that a crowd went to Aaron insisting that he take charge and that they make preparations to once again begin the journey. Again, back in chapter 24, by the way, another man was left in charge along with Aaron. That was her. We have no record of what happened to her, although uh, Jewish tradition says that he was killed by a mob of people because he stood against the crowd and would not give in to their demands. And we don't know that, we can't be definitive about that, that just comes from Jewish tradition. Pressure. Strong pressure was being put on Aaron to go along with the crowd. Does that sound vaguely familiar? Always, there's pressure constantly to go along with the crowd. That pressure is being exerted sociologically today in our country, it's being exerted politically today in our country, to quiet believers, to quiet the church and their testimony, and to go along with the crowd. The whole entertainment industry is committed to that proposition. 
to inculcate into us an attitude of, well, okay, we'll go along with the crowd. Pressure from a crowd can be a cause for terrible sin. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul writes this, don't conform to the pattern of this world. Don't go with the flow of this world anymore. It's that simple. Recognize that the world has nothing to offer us. We're the ones who should offer to the world. And yet the world is influencing Christians. The world is influencing the church. We are wholesale buying into the value system of the world. And and the church is powerless in many ways. When in fact the church should be influencing the culture. The church should be salt and light in the world, making a difference for good, restoration, hope. It's not something we just pick and choose. Well, you know, I just... No, no. It's, it's got to be a whole understanding and mentality. God has called us not to be spectators. He's called us to be servants. And pressure from the crowd. Don't conform. He says, rather be changed, be transformed by the renewing of your what? Your mind. You've got to know what the truth is. You've got to know God's mind. That's why we're reading the Bible together. That's why you say, God, reveal your mind to me. Open, open up your word. Fill me with your understanding of your truth. I want to love your word, God. God, I want to know how you think. I want to know you better. There's no better way to know him than through his word. You cannot know him apart from his word. You cannot know how he thinks. You cannot know his will You can't experience a transformation that results from the renewing of your mind apart from his word. Absolutely critical. How many want to know God's will for their life? Yeah. Apart from the fact, obviously, don't sin. Right? Pray, give thanks in all things. Obvious statements. But at the end of chapter, uh, verse 2 of chapter 12 of Romans, Paul says, when these things are substantially in place, then you'll know. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. He characterizes God's will as good, pleasing, and perfect. You cannot know God's will for your life apart from having your mind renewed and your life transformed. So many people, so many people succumb to the pressure of the crowd and make decisions in their life that fall way, way, way far short of God's will for their life, tragically. Terrible sin also is caused, as number three, is caused by suggesting evil to a weak leader. By suggesting evil to a weak leader. Aaron was weak. Tragically weak. As evidenced throughout this entire episode. He did not have the backbone to stand up for God, to stand against the pressure of the crowd. He gave in. He crumbled. This is why it's imperative that you and I, as believers, with this understanding, pray for our leaders. God, strengthen our leaders. Strengthen our leaders. Give them courage. Give them wisdom. Give them strength. God, deliver us from weak, wimpy leaders. Deliver us from people temporally as leaders, uh, spiritually as leaders, who have no backbone, who have no character, who have no commitment to what's right and true, who waffle. And the world, the world suggests all manner of evil to all of our leaders, doesn't it? We have bribes, people be paid off, compromise, compromise, compromise. We have more compromised leaders today than I think ever in the history of, of, our, of our land both inside and outside the church. Pray for our leaders to be strong, strong in faith particularly. Fourthly, terrible sin is caused by believing in false gods. Note what the people requested of Aaron, that he make them an image of some god who would guide them on their journey. Even though Israel had witnessed the invisible God in action, They still wanted the familiar gods that they could see 
and shape into whatever image they desired. How much like them we are. One of our great temptations, note this please, one of our great temptations is still to shape God to our liking. To make him convenient to obey or ignore. Oh, I know what you say, but I'm, I'm just going to ignore it. I'm not going to embrace I'm not going to engage it. I want an easy God. Convenient to obey. God according to my liking. Beloved, the gods we create absolutely will blind us to the love that our loving God wants to shower on us. If we could take a survey here this morning and and just have you write out, tell me about your experience of, of, of God's love in your life. The experience of knowing God's love in your life. God showering his love on you. I wonder how many people could actually come up with substantial continual testimonies. But we, we end up creating an idol. Unwittingly, in many ways. If you could, if you could choose your God... If you could choose your God, what would he, she, it look like? Think about that. God, if I could just make my own God? If I could choose my own God? Think about that. What what qualities would you attribute to that God? Would you necessarily choose the same God of the Bible? Now, I'd like to think we'd all say, oh, of course, absolutely, yeah. But see, we, we know about him in hindsight now, don't we? But given the fact that you didn't know all about him, what kind of God would you choose? I want my God to be female. I want my God to be neuter. I, you know, it, humans are bizarre. There's a fifth fifth cause for terrible sin this is simply by disobeying God's commandments we see this clearly pictured in this, in this section of scripture believing in false gods, worshipping idols are violations of the first two commandments once you open that door and you break those first two commandments man you're shot you have no basis upon which now to obey any of the other commandments the moral law You say, well, I thought we're not supposed to obey the letter of the law. No, it's by the spirit of the law. It's the spirit. But if in the spirit you are worshiping idols, you have just broken the law. And all the rest of the commandments are going to fall. There is only one true living God. We are to believe in him, in him alone, worship him, in him alone. But you cannot, you will not, unless you know him. Unless you know him. This is why it's imperative that we read. We read. We wrestle with the Scriptures. We say, God, reveal your glory to me. Show me. Open up my mind my heart to to who you are. If you want to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Six, another terrible, terrible sin is caused by believing, and this is important, believing that deliverance is of man, not God. Note that the people credited Moses with having delivered and saved them from Egyptian slavery. How quickly they had forgotten that their deliverance, salvation, was of the Lord God himself. They were attributing their deliverance and salvation to a mere man, even if that man was Moses. How typical. How typical of humanistic philosophy in every generation believing that deliverance and salvation rests in the hands of man himself. Human philosophies, human theories, and how many people flock to that. They flock to men as their saviors, rather than going to God, waiting on God, trusting in God, pursuing God, hungering after God. We trust in men. We trust in man's answers 
man's solutions for our problems. That belief, beloved, causes terrible sin. Terrible sin is caused by giving into and fearing the crowd. Number seven, giving into and fearing the crowd. We see this in verse two. Aaron gives into the crowd. He gives into the crowd and it leads to terrible sin. Aaron called for all the gold earrings of the people. Why would he call for the gold earrings? Pardon? Well, it's more than that. They call for the earrings because earrings in those days were always identified with idolatry. Always identified with idolatry. This is why he says your, your boys, your sons, your daughters, your women, your wives. And men wore earrings, and, and that was symbolic of their identification with idolatry. And really, that's no different today. You know, people wear earrings, especially the men wear earrings. It, they're, they're what calling attention to themselves, adorning their bodies. Um, it's another form of self-idolatry. Tui, stop wearing those earrings. <laughs> he calls for the earrings, and, and, and he's going to melt all the gold, all the golden earrings down, and, uh, and he's going to throw them all in a fire, and they're just magically going to come out in the form of a bull. That's what he says later when <laughs> Moses confronts him, you know. The bull was the bull was notoriously representative of symbolic of the Canaanite god Baal. The Israelites, no doubt, familiar with the pantheon of Egyptian gods, Baal would be one of them. They're going to take in, take over the land of Canaan, and so it would be logical for them now to want the Canaanite god Baal to lead them into the promised land. Hence, the the calf or the bull, if you will, and the in the earrings. And uh, the bull was symbolic of power and fertility, very appealing. No doubt the Israelites, fresh from Egypt now, found it natural to make this golden calf, this golden bull, to represent the God that had just delivered them from their oppressors. They're in transition here. They're weary of a God without a face. They may even have thought that in worshiping this calf, they were worshiping the one true God, equating the two. Any apparent sincerity on their part, however, was no substitute for obedience to God's command not to make an idol, not to make an image, nor was it an excuse for their disobedience. Well, I'm just being sincere. Yeah, you're sincerely wrong. Even if we do not make idols... We are often guilty of trying to make God in our own image, molding him to fit our expectations, our desires, our circumstances, our liking. Anybody ever get frustrated with God? I'm not even going to ask you to raise your hands. Get frustrated with God? Why do you get frustrated? Because he doesn't do what you want. And the time in which you want him to do it. What does that tell us? Who are we? We can bring our requests. We're confident. Here's our prayers. But who are we? We inevitably end up trying to reduce God to our image, our likeness. He's got to do things the way we do. We attribute all sorts of wrong motives to God. The truth be known, there are far too many Christians who, who question God's goodness who question God's word, who question God's purpose, as if they knew better, as if they had greater wisdom, and they could say, well, if I were God, I wouldn't do it that way. Thank God you're not God. Have you ever, have you ever been that, you know, in, that, in that conundrum, and, and you're, you're back and forth, you're mad at God, you're yelling at God, you're praying, you're praying, you're humble yourself, you're waiting, yeah, yeah, all that stuff. And then later on, whatever it is, happens, and it happens just at the right time, and you're going, whoa. <laughs> and you've been really embarrassed by your short-sightedness and foolishness before God. I have. 
I go, God, I am so sorry. I am so sorry I ever doubted you. You are faithful again and again and again and again. Hallelujah. Beloved, when you make God in, to fit your own expectations, you end up really worshiping yourself. You end up worshiping yourself rather than the God who created you. And self-worship today, as in the time of the Israelites, leads to all kinds of terrible sin and immorality. That's why Jesus says, deny yourself. You've got to learn to say no to yourself. Yeah, but I want... Nope. But I want... Nope, we're not going there. But I... Nope. Deny yourself. But it's my right. No. Maybe you're right, but don't go there. Deny yourself. Because if you don't, you're going to get in all sorts of trouble. Am I making sense? Note in verse 4 that the crowd began to proclaim that the idols were indeed the very gods who had delivered them and saved them. And verse 28 tells us that there were some 3,000 Israelites in that crowd. 3,000 leading this rebellion. 3,000 bringing pressure on Aaron. 3,000 agitating to move, to take matters in their own. 3,000 amongst how many? Two million? Doesn't take much. Just a small vocal group, huh? Pounding away. Drip, 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 drip. Small vocal group. But they continued to insist. Because Aaron gave in to this group... Oh, there was a threat now that thousands upon thousands of Israelites would be misled, resulting in terrible sin. That's why God will come deal with it. This is why this is important. That's why God wants us to deal with sin in our life. We not give it a foothold. We don't give the devil a foothold. Lastly, terrible sin is caused by false worship. Verses 5 and 6. When Aaron saw so many people following and turning to the idol, he goes ahead and says, Stop! This is wrong! Does he do that? No, no, notice what he does. He builds an altar. Aaron, not only does he craft the image, he builds an altar in, the, in front of the calf, and then he declares a festival to Yahweh. Now you recall... When Moses had gone to Pharaoh earlier on before they came out of Egypt, he went to Pharaoh and he said, let, God says, let my people go so they may go three days journey out into the wilderness and have a festival, offer sacrifice. So now here's Aaron. They're three days away, or three months actually, and they're going to have their festival. But who are they going to celebrate it to? This golden calf, this idol. And there's some confusion in the minds of some of the Israelites. Is this really Yahweh? Is this an idol? What is this? Uh, even Aaron himself, maybe in, in, in uh, uh, building the altar and possibly calling this festival, is trying to turn the focus of the Israelites back to Yahweh, not onto the idol. But guess what? It's too late. It's too late. The golden calf has already been made the terrible sin of equating God with the idol has already been committed in the hearts of the people. Note now, please, they rise early. They sacrifice both burnt offerings and fellowship offerings to the Lord. But in the eyes of the Lord, the offerings were not to him. The offerings were rather to the golden calf. Their offerings and sacrifices, quite simply, were unacceptable because they were professions only and false professions at that their idolatry led to their festival getting out of hand. After eating and drinking, they got up to indulge in revelry. Ooh, revelry. What is revelry? Well, the Hebrew word for revelry, revel, revelry has the idea of loose conduct. And more particularly, the idea of throwing off all behavioral and moral restraint. I remember years ago, I went to uh, Pamplona, Spain, to run with the bulls. And it's a, uh, it's a long festival, 
week, week and a half long. And, uh, and, the, and literally, the, the police are nowhere to be found. All, all restraints are off. There's, they suspend all the laws in Pamplona during that week-long festival when you run with the bulls. People are drunk, insane, girls get attacked. It's just incredible. And you can't find a policeman around anywhere. It's chaos. And if you're used to some kind of order and, 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 and structure in your life, and, and all of a sudden you're thrown into a chaotic city, you go, wait a minute, this is way too much. Even for me in those days, Tui. Idolatry always leads to immorality. Idolatry always leads to immorality. Let me read to you very simply from Romans chapter 1. Very instructive. Verse 21, Although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Made it look like mortal man, birds, animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Beloved, idolatry always leads to immorality and degradation. Always. If a person's involved in immorality, they're involved in immorality because they're first an idolater. It's not enough to clean up the immorality. You've got to get back and repent of the idolatry and get back walking with the Lord. Far too many Christians are involved in immorality. Far too many. Why? Because they're idolaters. They're not loving and worshiping God with their heart. They don't even know Him. Not in any personal, intimate way. They may say, I'm a Christian, I'm born again. If, well, if that's true, then why this? Why aren't you in love with Him? You're worshiping a God other than the one true God. So, beloved, knowing that given the opportunity, sin will reign in our mortal body, given the opportunity, true? Let me give you seven bewares. Beware. Beware first of becoming impatient. Beware of becoming impatient. Secondly, beware of the pressure of the crowd. The world, the world system. Third, beware of not praying for our leaders. We don't pray for our leaders, you're going to have weak leaders. Fourth, beware of trying to shape God into your liking. It's a very natural human tendency to try to reduce God's shape into my liking. Beware of that. Five, beware of disobeying His Word. Six, beware of believing your deliverance rests in the hands of men. Seven, beware of giving in to the pressure of the crowd. And lastly, beware that idolatry always leads to immorality and degradation. Always. If your life is being degraded, it's because of idolatry. Sexual immorality always degrades. It doesn't build up. People feel dirty. They feel wrong. They, they have a sense that this is not nice. This is not good. This is not healthy. It's all because of idolatry. Beware of idolatry. Beware that it wants to rear its head continually. Beware the world, the flesh, and the devil. We have the Spirit of God living in us. Walk after the Spirit. And you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you. We love you this morning. We say we love you. Lord, you know our hearts better than we do. Help us, Lord, to, to see you, know you, increase our appetite for your word as we read it and study it and meditate on it and memorize it. 
God, that you indeed will become more and more special, precious, wonderful in our life, and that we truly would respond to your love by loving you back. Lord, help us to be aware of sin in the flesh, how easily it can reign, and how we are not to allow it. Help us to be aware of these things and learn from Israel's example, from their mistakes, from their failures, that we not repeat them, but that we be people who rise above those things, Lord, because of you and who you are. Thank you. We love you this morning, Father. We say that we mean it in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. Turn to your brother, turn to your neighbor, and just give him a holy hug and say, you know what, I love God and I love you too.